Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations, and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. So I think the first thing we need to do at the top of the show is acknowledge that our two-week break turned into a three-week break. Yeah, that's um, fair. Because mm-hmm. that was unexpected for everybody, including us. And uh, frankly, what happened is <laughs> we both decided that it was a great time to get sick on our two-week break and yeah. <laughs> things got away from us. Um, I'm still fighting off a little bit of uh, something. <clears throat> uh, Robin, I don't know about you but i still my have voices. verona cough yeah yeah i gave myself fran fran lung real quick uh because i started working out way too hard uh-huh. uh <laughs> too soon so i have a little bit of a rasp in my voice yeah um i will i will frequently probably end up muting my mic to cough because uh, i i did get the dreaded coronavirus mm. um and thankfully, the only holdover I seem to have is that kind of weird asthma cough that pops up. But um, That's good. yeah, everybody in the house. Good. Everybody in the house is good. All right. Good. Excellent. How um, do our public service announcement You're vaccinated? Yes, I am vaccinated, but I was mm-hmm. not yet boosted. Um, again, we know that the vaccines that we have currently available are not completely effective against transmission, uh, but they are a really good preventative against severe disease. So I'm grateful that I had two doses to run with. Um, and I'm also grateful now that I have a level of natural immunity that I have added to the bunch. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah. Kept you out of the hospital. And that is right. the important part. Keep those beds open for the people who have, you know, fence posts through their stomachs and stuff. Exactly. Um, And also probably just like minimize your own suffering. There's that. Uh, Yeah. Like I'm I'm not one who likes to suffer when I'm sick. I am the person who gets a man cold. So the whatever I can do to keep from getting sick, I'm I'm totally there. No, I I uh, I don't like suffering. But as a millennial, you know, it is part of my general nihilistic existence checklist that I, uh, I must suffer. Oh, um, just, that's you know, right. It's, You're a younger millennial. Yeah, I am. I'm an I older am. millennial. We don't acknowledge suffering. We don't suffer. We just um, power through. We just power through. Right. hundred percent. 
Elder millennials, different breed. <laughs> different breed. Uh, <laughs> but that's not what Geriatric we're talking about. Geriatric millennials. What are we actually talking about this week? Yes. This week we are talking about the phenomenon that we and many other people have been calling the death of expertise. From foreign policy to election security to public health, over the last several years, we've all experienced our neighbors and our coworkers and our Facebook friends overnight ascension to seemingly expert level on all these subjects. We've alluded to it several times here on the podcast and how it can actually really interfere with our ability to have rational conversations with people who have different perspectives than we do. When everybody considers themselves to be an expert, there is very little room to consider anyone else's perspective or to compromise. Right. And we've also seen actual experts who have dedicated themselves to a specific field of study have to fight for a place of authority in the public space against the opinions and ideas of public persons who don't share the same level of education or understanding or civic mindedness, <laughs> sense of duty. But they have a huge platform and a large following and people people ascribe, you know, um, authority to them just because they are a person. Right. But this this trend could not possibly have popped up overnight, right? How did we get to the point where people who have literal and actual college degrees in complicated fields are placed on the same level of authority as opinionated politicians or folks who are moderately competent Google searchers? E to quote one of my favorite internet personalities, that is an excellent question we would love to tell you. But first, we do need to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Uh, we tread this line. Like, yeah. we, and we try to acknowledge it that in our intro at the top of every episode right. that we are going to get it wrong. That is uh -huh. why that disclaimer is so important to us yep. and why we've put it in since episode one. We understand that we ourselves are not experts. We try to source expertise, try to use other people's expertise, but we're not, we're not experts and we're not trying to claim to be. Right. That's, that is why we clearly tell you we're going to do our very best to draw that line between research and opinion because mm. we are just a conduit for this information that, for the most part, actual experts have done and published for us to have access to. Right. <clears throat> but like what is, what is expertise, right? What makes an expert? Right. So that's probably important to start with as we go into this conversation, um, why, what is an expert and, and why do they have the knowledge that they have? How did they right. get that? So fun fact, fun story time, story time settling kids. Did you know the word expert comes from the early Roman phrase ex partus? Um, the original meaning has been muddled through time, right? But it roughly translates to one who has transcended or literally departed, the bounds of normal human knowledge. Hmm. It's pretty crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah, I had to pick quite a bit of Latin up when I got my master's in criminal justice because law stuff. Hmm. Um, and it comes in uh, pretty handy when a practically useless dead language is necessary. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 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 Hmm. And if you believe that, I have some oceanfront property in Arizona I am trying to sell. Right, there Prime it is. investment opportunity. Mm -hmm. This is not in any way uh, where the word expert comes from. And I hope there's not somebody out there like screaming at us because they actually know. <laughs> um, 
In fact, it's pretty much the opposite of the original meaning. It does come from Latin, though, so that much is true. Um, the word is expertus, uh, and it meant to try or experience. Um, so that has nothing at all to do with having like deep knowledge about anything, right? In fact, it kind of sounds like an amateur. You're trying something, you're experiencing something, um, but it doesn't actually make uh, make me think of an experienced professional. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say, you know. I wouldn't say Tom Brady is trying football, you know? Right, that's fair. Um, but the definition of the word, like many of them do, has changed as the word itself changed and was handed down through languages. Expertus mm. may have meant at one point to try, but today expert means someone who has special skills or knowledge in a particular field. Liam Neeson's character in Taken, he tells you, very particular set of skills. <laughs> that man is an expert. I would not argue with that. But I think we need to get a little bit more functional than the dictionary definition. Yeah. So I think we can all agree, generally, that a person becomes an expert in a field by spending a lot of time studying it. That could mean that they go to school for years to become a doctor or a lawyer, or they spend years training and practicing so that they know everything about the inner workings of your car's engine and what that tapping sound means. Or they dedicate <laughs> their lives... your paycheck. Right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> or they dedicate their lives to a, a thankless stretch as an intern at the Department of State, followed by a marginally less thankless time in the Foreign Service, and eventually get promoted up through the ranks until they're Secretary of State. Or they put in... Herculean levels of effort to gain some mastery of a subject in a really short space of time. That last group, the actual like, Tony, I became an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics last night, Stark type. Mm -hmm. Now that's a reference to an Avengers movies, folks. Sorry. <laughs> um, they are exceedingly rare. And I would argue that even those types aren't so much experts as they are just like deeply knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Initially, there's a difference between having a strong and, and, and broad foundation of knowledge, of facts, of, of theory, right? And having the wherewithal to apply that information practically. Mm -hmm. um, we've all worked or seen or know the old like seasoned veteran at something right. that is at a job that's like difficult to do and we know how to do a job but then you watch them do it and they don't do it quote unquote right right but <laughs> they leverage their experience and their knowledge and they get it done much faster yeah uh, and and usually better also true so there are some things that only experience can teach you uh, regardless of that though regardless of how this person ascended to experthood, coining that phrase, um, they, what they don't do, what experts don't do rather, is just declare themselves as experts because <laughs> they went on Joe Rogan one time and said some shit about treating deadly viruses with DMT or something. I'm sorry. I'm hearing, in fact, that that is exactly what happens. Oh, God. No. In fairness to Joe Rogan, because I personally don't listen to his show and I mm -mm. think it is toxic mm -hmm. but his team does manage to get some very heavy hitting knowledgeable experts on the show and I do not want to diminish their experience and 
their knowledge uh, at all. It's when people mistake Rogan himself for an expert in these topics that we absolutely run into problems. And that is all I'm going to say about that right now, unless you really want us guys to get into this whole fiasco with uh, Joe Rogan and Spotify and yeah. uh, Neil Young, which would be fun to talk about, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd be steaming the whole time, I think. Right. There's probably <laughs> on. like a deeper applicable principle in there that we should try to tease out at some point. But so, yeah, maybe for the purposes of this conversation, when we say expertise, we mean someone who has put in a significant amount of effort into their topic, whether it's academic or experiential. They've acquired the knowledge through hard effort that most of the human population has not or cannot match. The best experts don't just know a lot about the subject, but they're also able to relate it in new ways. They can take a complex topic and break it down into smaller parts that make sense on their own, as well as connect various strands of information together. They've developed a capacity to see and understand the various facets of a given subject. Cultivating that understanding takes an intensity of focus that goes far beyond casual experience. Clearly, people are still going to college. People are still getting degrees. They're still pursuing careers in research. They're still spending their lives perfecting an instrument or uh, laying brick, right? People all over the world are still functioning as an expert or in an expert capacity. So isn't it a little dramatic, perhaps, <laughs> to say expertise is dead? What do we really mean when we say that? Okay, so... Here's a poll that honestly, some of our listening audience may not get. I get it because I'm old enough to remember when my late night insomnia television options were limited to reruns of syndicated television shows. Right. But and I will say I have one buddy, hey Ellis, that will likely understand this one, but he's an old soul. <laughs> the rest of this, the rest of you might not get it, but if you do. Yeah. And if you don't, you know, Google it. That's, it's great. It's a great option. But do you remember Cliff Clavin from the 80s sitcom Cheers? He was a Boston mailman and barfly. Everyone was a barfly in that show, who was an expert on everything. Like his counterparts in real life, he prefaced every single statement with, it's a known fact or studies have shown. And viewers loved Cliff because everybody knew somebody like him. We found him and other characters like him endearing because they were quirky exceptions in a society that otherwise respected and relied on the views of, you know, actual experts. But a lot has changed since we first met Cliff 40 years ago. Oh, you could say that. And maybe it's no surprise that in a, in a global culture that venerates entrepreneurial spirit and hard work, it feels like expertise has almost become a dirty word. It's, it's likely our own doing, you know, after generations of you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. We've lost the, the cultural appreciation of how hard some things can be. And society has begun to, it feels like rather, that society has begun to turn against the idea of individuals who have dedicated their lives to specific topics or pursuits. Um, and that's reflected in our in our entertainment, right? In movies, uh, mocking characters have been created to represent, you know, people with deep knowledge from one end of the spectrum to the other. Like David Schwimmer, um, he has that helpless, nerdy 
pedantic Ross Geller uh, in Friends. And Ross was only allowed to be the butt of jokes as a paleontologist. Like you, I can't think of many examples of where him being a paleontologist is is, is played as like impressive and desirable and cool, you know? Right. I think there's one episode where he's like a teacher and you get to see him with his students who who sort of venerate his experience. But even that one, it's a little like, yeah, I don't know. Somebody will correct me on that one if I'm wrong, because I have friends who are way more into (laughs) friends than I am. Um, But aside from that, like I've lost count of the number of movies that feature some sort of like passionate and obviously expert character that's just like hopelessly stuck on a complex problem Mm -hmm. and they just kind of they end up standing with mouth agape as the main character joe everyman solves a thousand year old riddle with a blinding display of common sense Mm -hmm. something that apparently the expert couldn't have done or didn't try and there are years of study and they're thinking too hard about it yeah right or in, in the opposite end of the spectrum, like the lifelong plumber that is always some sort of simpleton with no capacity for higher thought, unless that capacity can be played for a joke, right? So we have these uh, these unwritten rules, I guess, in entertainment about how we write expertise, how we appreciate it. Um and whenever the show is a f- is focused on experts, it is always played to mock them, at least from a normal person's perspective. Mm-hmm. The show The Big Bang Theory is literally about that. Yeah. It's funny because normal people can't relate to people who operate and function like, like the, the cast of that show. Mm-hmm. Um, the IT crowd, another example. So... Sports, if television isn't your thing, sports aren't safe either. Um, And this is one of my favorite, (laughs) favorite polls that illustrates this topic because it is absolutely hilarious to me. 12% of British men who were surveyed thought that they could score a point on Serena Williams in a tennis match. (laughs) Serena Williams. That's cute. 39 time, 23 of those times being by herself, Grand Slam title holder Serena Williams. So cute. Good luck. Good luck. I think her serve is like something, it's like over 120 miles an hour or maybe it's 200 miles an hour. It's really freaking fast. It's super freaking fast. I don't know how I would react to something that's flying across a tennis court at me at multiple hundreds of miles an hour i probably would just try to get out of the way i'm gonna be really honest yeah 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 um and then everybody's really familiar uh and this one's a little more sobering 31 percent of americans right now um trust dr fauci when it when it comes to advice about COVID 19 only 31 percent of america basically trusts the the nation's hand-picked expert for communicating uh, guidance and what we know about COVID-19. Right. Hashtag not and, my expert. Right. Right. And it's, it's – mm, part of that is because 
their science communication has been severely lacking for <sighs> two and a half years now. But that doesn't make Fauci any less of an expert. Right. Right. And that, that highlights the problem perfectly, though. No reasonable person could argue that Serena Williams isn't an expert at tennis or that Dr. Fauci isn't an expert when it comes to virology. The expert itself has not gone away. But what we seem to have lost is an appreciation for what it really means to be an expert. From where I'm sitting, it seems like the focus of the phrase expert opinion has shifted from expert to opinion. The context of the origins of that opinion are ignored, and anyone can have one, and they're all equally valid, right? Opinions are like armpits. Everyone has one, and they all stink. So That's one phrase that... <laughs> I've used to I've heard the one I, the version of that that I've heard is not so nice <laughs> no that's this is a not spicy edit right right this right, is right, a not right, spicy right. edit so how did we end up here it's not as if we've collectively lost our understanding of the importance of having experts I mean, imagine if you needed open heart surgery and you were given the choice between an expert with years of study and experience and training and me with an encyclopedia and a YouTube tutorial to perform the operation like, yeah, I'm really good at learning stuff from YouTube, but you're probably going to go with the heart surgeon. I'd be hard-pressed to believe that anybody would fail to see the obvious advantage that having an expert would bring to the situation. And, you know, choose the novice, choose to give me a shot at it. Why not? We all know how to respect the authority of an expert, and we inherently value that expertise. But that respect seems to have an increasingly limited reach. When the time for considering more nuanced ideas like financial policy and pandemic response comes up, respect and trust in experts takes a significant hit. So if we go back to our example about the surgeon, it turns out, um, and this is, this is a quote actually, Americans tend to trust science practitioners who directly provide treatments and recommendations to the public more than researchers working in the same areas. So what that means is that specifically 48% of those surveyed say medical doctors provide fair and accurate information about their recommendations most of the time. But that same group, that same group that was polled uh, were asked about medical research scientists, so mm -hmm. not practicing doctors. And they only thought that the researchers, the people who develop all of this information that the practitioners use, uh, only provided fair and, and accurate information 32% of the time. So from almost half of the time for medical doctors to about a third of the time for researchers. I would be um, really interested in the whys of that. Did they discuss that at all did you when you were looking at that source it it was more about the hit than the why for yeah. that particular article and i didn't have time to really dive into it too deep um but also for us the important thing to talk about is that there is that discrepancy between the actual perceived practicing expert and the uh, research and the scientist if you will right so how did we then, as a society, get to that point? How did we end up killing one of the most important aspects of a healthy and functioning nation? Who killed general expertise? 
<laughs> That's funny. So yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. That's great. So while it, it might be tempting to take a clue approach to this problem and say, you know, that the internet killed expertise in the dining room with a keyboard, in reality, how we got to this place is, uh, you guessed it, it's complicated. There's always On been- this show? I know, right? No, this is where people come for straightforward, not nuanced answers. Gasp. Gasp. Like we talked about before, though, there's always been that almost comical tension between intellectuals and regular people. As the joke goes, the pointy heads are always complaining about the denseness of us regulars, and the average Joes have no small amount of distrust for those big brains. In every society where educated, quote, elites exist there is an undercurrent of resentment and mistrust of them. And the bigger the knowledge gap is between the experts and the normies, the bigger the social and trust gap gets. And then also, as we're discussing this, we can't forget to mention how attached we get to our folk wisdom. I mean, science has long debunked the idea that going to bed with wet hair will give you a cold, and yet thousands, even millions of children will go to bed with dry hair tonight because generations of parents before them were taught that very adage. Right. In all reality, there is no practical or reliable way to measure whether people are any dumber or less trusting of experts than they were 100 or 1,000 years ago. But here's the thing. Now, today, we can hear all of the opinions. All of them. All of them. The public forum as we know it has transformed. We've moved from traditional journalism like newspapers and television news and talk shows and even books Again, most of which were created or contributed to at least by professionals with specific skills and knowledge and experience to this like wild, wild west of the internet <laughs> where more information than we could consume in a lifetime is at our fingertips every second of every day. I mean, it's the whole reason we are able to do this podcast. We have access to enough information to write a 4,000 word minimum research paper on a single very specific topic every week simply because we have the the entire works of the human world basically right. at, at our hands. Yeah. It's like um, there. one of my favorite internet cartoons is called Poorly Drawn Lines and there was one last week that basically was like, pick me as your phone. I'll give you access to all the knowledge of the world in your hands. And then at the end, the character's like, I already have access to all the knowledge of the world in my hands. Like, that's what we have in front of us every single day. And this stream of consciousness approach to public discourse also gives us a close-up look at one particular brand of cognitive bias, one of our favorite things to talk about here, the Dunning-Kruger effect. This bias leads people with limited knowledge or competence in a given area to greatly overestimate their own knowledge or competence in that subject in comparison to objective criteria to the performance of their peers or just to other people in general. According to the researchers for whom this bias is named, we fall prey to this fallacy because we're basically not smart enough to realize that we're dumb. So 
what does that look like again? What does it what what do they mean when they say like people's bias leads them to to overestimate their own knowledge in something? Like what does that practically look like? Because that was a, a long explanation of what the Dunning Kruger effect is. Right. Um so in in application, what would that be? It basically means that you know enough to to carry a conversation with somebody um, and to assert your opinion as though it is actual expertise because you you know about this thing and you then can go toe to toe with another person who also knows about this thing, even in your perception when or even when in actuality they have expert knowledge in that subject. So this is when, when I think about this, the example that comes to mind for me is meteorologists, right? Everybody thinks that meteorologists don't know what they're doing mm-hmm. because they have to predict the weather and the weather is, I mean, their predictions are frequently wrong. Um, and therefore, all the time I see people who look at the forecast and they're like, oh yeah, that's not going to happen. No, I know that it's not going to snow today or it's not going to snow tomorrow. This literally happened to me yesterday. It's not going to snow tomorrow. I don't believe the forecast. Uh, it, we're we're going to get like a dusting. Um, and the thing is, this time, this time that person was pretty right. Like we didn't, we got more than a dusting, but we didn't get as much as we could have gotten. Mm-hmm. But they, they didn't take into consideration all of the information that they didn't know right. that the meteorologist also didn't know because the storm front hadn't actually formed yet. We were watching this this bomb cyclone move up the East Coast uh-huh. and we just didn't know where it was going to track, East or West. Um, and it was, this person basically was flipping a coin um, and they kind of ended up just taking a contrarian opinion that we're not going to get a lot of snow simply because the meteorologists had predicted we could get a lot of snow. Right. And because they think that they are, their opinion on the weather was as, uh, as valid, they overestimated their knowledge about how weather systems form and what could happen. Right. Um, they very confidently asserted, you know, this isn't going to happen, right? Which is, it's, it's bonkers on the surface. There's, they had no reason to actually be, to actually think to actually believe that they knew more about the weather than the meteorologists. Right. And and the best place to see this you can find this if you go to any news source that quotes any kind of experts, meteorologists are a great example. Go to the comment section. Now generally I say the first rule of social media is stay out of the comments, but that's where this plays out just spectacularly. You'll see that entire comment section under a forecast on a weather Facebook page, be filled with people explaining to the meteorologists why they're wrong, why that's not going to happen, calling their credibility into account because you said there was a 70% chance of rain on this day and it didn't rain, not fully understanding what that percentage chance of rain means or what factors into the forecasts that these meteorologists are making. The, the people who fall prey to this bias kind of fall into a, a Goldilocks zone of cluelessness. Generally, folks who know nothing about a subject, no buzzwords, no headlines, are very aware that they're ignorant 
I know that I know absolutely nothing about astrophysics. Absolutely nothing. And then you have folks who have a certain working knowledge of a subject, and they're aware enough to understand how much they don't know. That's most of us, even professionals in our fields. We understand that there's a lot more about our field that we don't know. But the folks who display the Dunning-Kruger effect are in this swampy area where they know enough about something to realize that they're not ignorant and that often they know more than their immediate circle, but they don't know enough to know what they don't know. They're generally aware, unaware of their deficiencies, and so they assume that they're not deficient. It's the literal embodiment of the Charles Darwin quote, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Uh, so in a 1999 paper, uh, Dunning and Kruger summarized the results of studies in which they put this effect to the test. They tested the abilities of four groups of young adults in the areas of humor, logical reasoning, and grammar. The results showed that the incompetent members of the test groups dramatically overestimated their ability and performance relative to the objective criteria outlined. And they were also less able to recognize their own incompetence by comparing their performance with the performance of others. Now, that's not to say that every person overestimates their knowledge of everything all the time, or that only blowhards will get caught up in this bias. We are all in danger here. I am in danger here, for sure. I will be <laughs> right. the first to admit it. Per our previous conversation about the vastness of the information superhighway, we now all have that minimum threshold of knowledge on tiny computers in our pockets. And like, this is, I, I'm afraid people will hear this and they will think, oh, well, I, I know that I don't know stuff. But it is possible for you to know your own ignorance, to know how ignorant you are in one area and not realize it in another area. Right. And the whole part, the whole problem with bias, as we've talked about before, is the fact that it impacts us all. Bias is insidious. It is not something that we are aware of. There's no flashing red, you've got bias light that goes off when you display it. No. Um, it just, it is. Yeah. You have it. Your friends have it. Your friend's parents have it. Everybody has it. It is highly and advantageous to your brain to have it, according to your brain. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so we shouldn't spend our time trying to resist or trying to fight against the idea that we are not, you know, we're, we're not this person. We need to recognize that we display these tendencies because that's how we are wired. And we need to say things like, I don't know more often. The only reason I bring that up is because the only New Year's resolution that I have ever made, I made this year, and it was to say I don't know more. Interesting. That's 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 it. Just to say the phrase, I don't know. And then to be like, but I'll find out, right? Right. To follow up on that, not to just use it to end it, but to to admit out loud when I don't know something instead of like blindly trying to piece together mm -hmm. the information that I have that's related to that and probably arrive at an incomplete or incorrect conclusion. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good one. That's a really solid resolution. I, I, I probably should take that to heart a little bit. Good, good, good advice. 
Okay, so to keep on this conversation here, let's time to do some math. We have the, I know, right? It's my favorite kind of math. The math that is actually words and not really math. Yes. Yes. Imaginary math. Yes. It's the best kind. So we have the historical divide between intellectual haves and have lesses, plus access to an overwhelming amount of opinion and information, times a cognitive bias that leads people to believe that they know a hell of a lot more about important topics than they do. And when you run that completely fake word math, you come out with something like we've never seen before in American culture, which is active hostility toward established knowledge and expert opinion. It's like an equation for the potential reversal of decades or even centuries of social progress. And here's why that's probably bad. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to spell it out in case it wasn't obvious. Right. And I I did say probably because the caveat to this is that there will always be instances where challenging the the long-held expert belief on something brings us to a more factual and truthier truth, right? For a very long time, experts, medical doctors believed that people like me with brown skin had physically thicker skin than people with white skin. And that was used to justify all sorts of horrible things. So it took challenging that established knowledge to get to the point where people understand that my skin is the same thickness as yours. But as a whole, when we have this collective active hostility toward all established knowledge and the idea of an expert opinion, that's where we run into trouble. And for some of you listening, and certainly for those people who have gained influence or furthered their agendas, Through this process, this leveling out of the discourse playing field might actually feel like a good thing overall. After all, we do know, science tells us, that a drastic stratification in a society, whether that's on economic grounds or appearance or even intellectual grounds, often leads to marginalization and disadvantage for some and outsized privilege for other people. But this Open antagonism for expert knowledge is is probably a bad idea overall. And let us explain that to you because it feels really important to do that. Yeah. First, and we've mentioned this before, diversification drives progress. So in his book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, a book that we highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Author Tom Nichols uses the example of a skyscraper to explain why expertise is important. He says, We do not expect the metallurgist who knows what goes into a girder, or the architect who designs the building, and the glazer who installs the windows to be the same person. Someone with significant education and experience leads each different area of construction. And though they have some overlapping knowledge, each concentrates on the area that they know best. And those with the skills and expertise to execute on the experts' plans do so with precision. Trust and cooperation between professionals leads to a final product that is greater than one of them could have produced on their own, 
or if all of them were experts. But if everyone involved in the construction of a skyscraper was an expert in every area of design and planning and construction and finishing, you can imagine how difficult it would be to finish any part of the process. Opinions and preferences would clash all over the place and nothing would get done. I mean, we see this right now with disagreements from actual professional experts <laughs> on how to handle the COVID pandemic. Well-educated and experienced individuals with expertise in the same relevant areas cannot come to complete agreement on how to best move forward. The most progress has been made, regardless of how you feel about the decisions, when experts from diverse areas come together to consider the problem from a broader perspective. And then they trust each other to bring the best knowledge to the decision-making table. So when we try to consider a society where everyone is considered an expert and every person's opinion should carry the same weight when it comes to policymaking or governance or public health, regardless of their actual competence in the subject, it becomes pretty clear that we'd spend a lot of time arguing over who's more right and not much time making actual progress toward what anyone says that they want. Kind of sounds like the state of the American political system, doesn't it? But um, and if you doubt, if you doubt, by the way, if you this this statement that experts working together would lead to more conflict than progress, I just want you to consider any of you, especially those of you who are married, how to fold a towel. Oh, I was gonna go with load the dishwasher, but fold a towel is great. Either one, right? We are all, I would say, relative towel folding experts because we have to be. We have to fold our towels after we wash them. We've all done it. We did it when we were single. We learned it from our parents, maybe, or we developed our own system when we had to because we had towels, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has their preferred way. Everybody has their preferred method. I'm going to say something that is probably going to tick a lot of people off. There's no right way to fold a towel. Oh, my God. I know. I know. There's not. It, it is entirely situational. And there might be a right way to fold a towel for this closet. But that way might be different than how you fold a towel for this closet right. or this drawer or this house or this tile of towel. Right. It all changes. And. If you've ever had that argument with the person that you live with, the person that you share the towel folding responsibility with, that is a small <laughs> example of what happens when you get a bunch of experts on a topic or a complex situation together to find out the best way forward. Right. Right. It, that's a brilliant example. Okay. So the, the second reason that we think that this is really actually bad is that antagonism toward established knowledge can be dangerous, like literally dangerous. It's not really up for debate that humans are pretty prideful. We want to believe that we as individuals are capable of anything and everything and at pretty much the same time. And we, me specifically, also bristle really, really hard when someone else tries to correct us or teach us something that we don't actually understand. 
on a person-to-person level, this is just an annoying character trait. But it becomes dangerous when it becomes a shared characteristic across an entire group or a society. So let's consider anti-vaccine or vaccine-hesitant parents, for example. And before we get started, we are not saying that vaccine-hesitant parents are inherently dangerous. I was a vaccine-hesitant parent. So bear with us as we talk through this example, and I think that you'll see where we're going here. A 2012 study that was conducted using information that was collected from parents who utilized vaccine exemption policies in schools and those who did not showed that 39.9%, of respondents believed that the internet was a good or excellent source of information on vaccines. And those parents who indicated that they used the internet broadly as a source of information on vaccines were less likely to believe that sources like healthcare providers, the CDC, or local health departments were overall good sources of information on vaccines. They were more likely to trust sources like the media in general and dedicated anti-vaccine organizations to be good or excellent sources. They were twice as likely to agree with the statement Children get more immunizations than are good for them. I'm pretty sure that back when my children were very small, I probably said that sentence out loud. And they were more than three times as likely to agree with the statement that immunizations do more harm than good. I don't think I ever agreed with that. And then they were significantly less likely to believe that immunization requirements protect children from getting diseases from unimmunized children. Some pretty weighty stuff. Yeah. And that's children's lives on the line. Right. And like we just discussed a few minutes ago when we talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect, these aren't completely ignorant and uninformed parents. Parents who indicated that they use the internet as a source of vaccine information tended to have higher education levels than the median and higher income levels than the median. In other words, these are people who are smart enough to put together a base level of knowledge, but who may also be blind to their deficiency of expertise. Right. Or their information hygiene practices as well. Exactly. So why is this dangerous? These parents genuinely want the best for their children, and they are just trying to make the best decisions for them. But these parents and organizations aren't just keeping their thoughts and opinions to themselves and applying them to their families' lives. The death of expertise centers on open antagonism to established knowledge, and the anti-vaccine movement is nothing if not antagonistic. A wealth of dollars is invested every year in campaigns designed to dissuade parents from vaccinating their children against diseases that we know can have potentially significant health consequences. One of the most prominent organizations in the anti-vaccine movement, the Children's Health Defense, that name, brought in $2.9 million in contributions in fiscal year 2019. Now, they spent 834000 of that in executive compensation which was 44% of their total expenses. But the rest of that money got spent funding books designed to discredit Dr. Fauci. There's literally a book on the front page of their website 
that is titled The Truth About Fauci or something ridiculous like that. They paid money to have that book written to discredit an expert. They've spent their money promoting rallies and, and funding them to defeat the mandates in places all across the country and in producing... There, sorry. I was just going to say there was a rally here last week oh. in, in D.C., uh, an anti-vax rally, and it was it was a sizable crowd. I don't I'm not sure of the exact numbers. I just remember watching the coverage of it and thinking to myself, somebody's going to die because of this. Right. Like no matter how you feel about vaccines, the fact of the matter is there were it was also an anti-mask. Uh, of course, group because shocker, the two are highly correlated. Yeah. Um, so it's all of these people out in the, the middle of winter without any masks, without likely any vaccination for, against COVID, um, and they are going to spread COVID amongst each other. That group probably was a super spreader event. I don't think we're tracking that anymore. No. But I would, I would be comfortable making that educated guess based on what we've seen about other events earlier in the pandemic with a less infective, infectious strain right. of COVID. Um, you know, parties of 20 would lead to hundreds of people getting infected because it's not just the people at the rally, it's the people they then go home and interact with. Right. So this event guaranteed exposed bare minimum dozens of people, probably hundreds and those people are going to go back to their people and hopefully the people around them are vaccinated, but likely their own families probably aren't like the ones they're responsible for, right. not their parents or brothers, stuff like that. Right. And they're going to infect their kids. They're going to infect their spouses if their spouse wasn't there and also is anti-vax. They're going to go to work. They're going to infect the people at work that are vulnerable. And even if nobody at the rally itself ends up dying, somebody is going to succumb because of that rally. Right. It will lead directly to death. Exactly. It, like, they spend this money, and this is just one organization, there is just an absurd amount of money that is spent paying lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to advocate for anti-vaccine policy. They produce these legal resources to help parents fight against the established knowledge of vaccine benefits, things that we know according to science, to be truth about the benefits of vaccines. Yeah. Now, for example, the, the National Meningitis Association reports that there are between 600 and 1,000 cases of meningococcal disease every year, caused primarily by four strains of the disease, B, C, Y, and W. 21% of those cases will occur in children or young adults. Between 10 and 15% of those infected will die. That's a massive mortality rate. One in five who live will do so with a permanent injury, like hearing loss, limb loss, neurological damage caused by the illness, expressly caused by the illness. We have available vaccines 
that are between 85 and 90% effective against strains C, Y, and W. Three of the four. They cause 75% of disease in people 2 to 25 in the United States. And there is not convincing evidence to support a causal link between the meningococcal vaccine and significant injury. For the most part, meningococcal vaccines themselves are not controversial. But still, 20% of U.S. teens remain completely unvaccinated against meningitis. Less than a third of first-dose recipients have completed a highly necessary booster dose. And this is just a small-scale example, just one of the many vaccines that we have. To discuss the full extent of the campaign against disease, how much funding there is for lobbyists, and the accuracy of anyone's information would, re would require an entire series. An entire series. We actually follow a guy on Instagram, Dr. Nock, N-O-C. Um, I highly recommend following his content. If you do, let him know that we sent you. Um, because he, uh, he takes the time to explain complicated concepts about vaccines, about science in general, about Omicron. He's a very good science communicator. Um, and a lot of the things he talks about are viruses because that is what he researches. Mm -hmm. It's what he does. He's an actual PhD and he holds his, his PhD in, I believe, um, a form, you'd have to double check with him, I don't know him personally, but a form of, of, of studying virology and, and uh, infection and vaccines. Somewhere in that neighborhood. <laughs> Knows quite a bit about right. it. Not 100% on exactly what it is, but I trust his opinion. Exactly. There's another podcast out there that I really love called Endless Thread, and they did a great series on vaccine-hesitant parents and anti-vaccine parents. Um, highly recommend it. Go check it out. We'll try to link it in the show notes here. But there, like, it, it takes a lot to discuss why this is a thing, but it's a thing and it's dangerous. And that's the point that we're trying to get across. We also want to make sure that you understand that we don't just mean that this shift is physically dangerous. It is also dangerous to the stability of our democracy. We only have to look at the fallout from the 2020 election to see how quickly we can move from doubt to distrust to insurrection when the expertise of those who have built their careers securing our free and fair elections comes under attack. The active antagonism of the trustworthiness and knowledge of everyone from election software developers to national security leaders to the elected and appointed state officials who carry out the elections process was put fully on display and even continues a full year after the violence at the Capitol. This is yeah. dangerous if we want a stable democracy, which I have to admit, not everybody does, but I do. No, they And don't. it's dangerous. So how, how can we bring this back, right? How can we bring expertise back from the dead, so to speak? And no... For all you D&D nerds, we're not talking about necromancy here or even a revivify spell. The question at hand is actually how do we recenter people with significant knowledge and experience in discussions that are relevant to them and minimize the influence of un- or misinformed opinions on public 
discourse. It starts by reframing how we present information. The Edelman Trust Barometer, an annual trust and credibility survey, um, calls this widespread feeling of distrust of experts information bankruptcy. If credible information is an important currency that enables us to move freely and securely through life, we're broke and we have some debt to work off. For their 2021 survey, the team at Edelman outlined four steps that must be taken to restore society's trust in our experts based on analysis of data from over 33,000 respondents in 28 countries. This is a very large sample size. Yeah. This is a highly, you can, you can, uh, you can have a, a high degree of, of confidence in these. Right. And uh, it's results. global. It's not just Americans. So that also right. adds to that credibility a bit. Right. And the four steps are, they're pretty straightforward. And some of them are kind of like, no duh, actually, <laughs> but they're critical to, to, to say out loud. The first one is businesses. Business, businesses currently enjoy a higher trust rating than government representatives. And these businesses, businesses have to embrace this position and lead on issues from systemic racism to upskilling. And they need to act before they begin talking about all of their plans and what they're going to do. They have to, they have to be good stewards of information. Mm -hmm. They have to try to adhere to, you know, science, try to adhere to best practices, try to adhere to informed decisions and not their guts. But if they can do that and they actually do it, instead of just saying, we're going to do it, we're going to do this thing, they can start helping rebuild society, our society's trust in institutional knowledge, in, in, in expertise. The second step is societal leaders need to act with empathy and lead with facts. They have to have the courage to provide straight talk, but also empathize and address people's fears. And this is why Andrew Cuomo was so popular at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Setting aside the tragedy of what happened to him later and the, the horrible corruption that came out of it and focusing on why people were, quote, Cuomo-sexuals uh, <laughs> during the start of the pandemic. Didn't make that phrase up myself. Um, it's because Andrew Cuomo had a very effective way of providing the facts and some of them were manipulated, but listen, people trusted that they were the facts, right? And that he empathized, or it felt like he empathized with the viewer. Mm -hmm. It felt like he genuinely cared to a lot of people. And you could see almost overnight how effective that was and how much people trusted him and what he had to say. He was more trusted than Trump and even the CDC at one point, I think, for communicating about uh, COVID. Um, and that really makes what happened afterwards all the more tragic. But it doing that, but doing it right with, you know, 
complete sets of facts and not being a skeevy dude, it would be really important for rebuilding our societal trust. Mm -hmm. The next step seems pretty evident, but societal leaders need to provide trustworthy content. <laughs> Gasp. Going back, I mentioned it in, in step one. I'm, it is its own step, right? All institutions, they have to provide truthful, unbiased, reliable information. We need to start valuing our leaders, our CEOs, right? Our people at the top, the people that society looks to for information, people like Joe Rogan for 11 million listeners every week, they need to prioritize truthful, unbiased, reliable information. Yeah. They need to vet their sources. They need to challenge ideas that seem uh, contrary to scientific consensus. Mm -hmm. They need to tease out these things. And if like, I mean, that's why I've never listened to Rogan is because he never challenges his guests. He just lets them speak. And that allows them to establish an air of credibility. Right. But if you have very toxic ideas that you're spreading or very dangerous ones, that's not good. That's not okay. <clears throat> we have to be thoughtful in how we receive information and also willing to be convinced when evidence is presented. And that starts with our leaders making sure that the information they present is truthful and as unbiased and reliable as they can reasonably make it. Mm -hmm. And the final step, number four, don't try to do everything alone businesses, government, NGOs, and everybody else. We have to find a common purpose and take collective action to solve societal problems, hmm. which feels a bit like putting the cart before the horse to me. Um, but in order to solve the divisions in our society, we have to do this. We have to operate together in spite of our divisions. And that is obviously it's difficult. It is incredibly hard to find a common enemy, mm -hmm. <laughs> to find common ground with somebody who you disagree with on so much. But that's why this podcast exists. That's right. what we try to do is build that common ground up. And it's what all of us need to do. Yeah. Find the common ground, find the common problem, work towards solving it. I mean, we, we kind of preface this as like four, these are four simple steps. This is what we got to do. <laughs> but as we move through those living in the society that we live in, it becomes very clear how difficult this will be. Like this is not going to be an easy process because you have somebody like Joe Rogan who went from challenging people to eat bugs on primetime television to a podcast that 11 million people listen to without fail every single week and a platform was willing to uh, cut ties with an established great artist, musical artist, over, right? He's got all of that on the line. So the idea that he would take a step back and start doing something that could affect the popularity of his show, like we're asking people to make sacrifices and to put their own well-being aside for the benefit of society. And that is always troublesome. But it's really, really important. That's why we tend to have these idyllic remembrances of wartime in countries all over the world in different wars for whatever. 
It's because we've coalesced against a common enemy and because we're able to put our individual wants aside in order to work together to take on this problem. Like, I'm not a big fan of symbolic wars like the war on drugs and the war on poverty. But I maybe could get a little bit behind this war on ignorance, on willful ignorance, on on the the exaltation of ignorance. I think I could too. Yeah. Maybe we don't call it a too. war. Yeah. Battle against right uh unification honestly what we need is a bunch of aliens to attack so the whole planet has to come together that's really what i th- i'm thinking is i don't know if will um, smith is young enough for that anymore that's a good point good point. we might be hosed if you think we're host let us know <laughs> there it is you can find us at firesidebreakdowns.com. Please check out our website. That's where you can find uh, all of our ep- episodes uploaded, all of the show notes, which are basically our script uh, with the sources, citations in it. Um, so you can check what we checked and see if you arrive at the same conclusions. Um, if you feel so compelled, you can even send us a note there and let us know, hey, uh, I really liked when you talked about uh, you know, something. That was super cool. Um, You can also find us on social media, Instagram, Facebook being the most active places now that we're not sick anymore. Mm -hmm. Again, apologies for the uh, additional week of rest, but we had to. Um, We just we tried to make it work and it wouldn't do it. Also, I would like to make a a quick announcement. We are um, expanding the Fireside Breakdowns team a little bit, a little bit. Um, So you will be hearing more uh, from Savannah, who we interviewed a while back about her experiences in Afghanistan. Um, She is going to help us uh, research, uh, write these episodes. So she is officially a producer, senior producer. Um, And um, hopefully we will be able to work her into um, some more episodes going forward. So she'll have hosting duties at some point. And we are very excited to have her on the team and very happy that she agreed to uh to join us um and then the last thing before we get to the good news and the one thing that i want everybody here to do for us please i am begging you do me a favor leave us a review you can leave us a review on spotify right in the app you can go to um our link tree that's in the in the uh the little show description it'll take you to how uh, you can leave us a review so many ways. So many ways. It is so crucial and so vital to driving audience and engagement. Um, so please leave us a review. Now, what is that good, good news? Oh, it's good, good news. You ready for this? I'm so ready for this. Okay. The Minnesota Vikings have finally listened to the NFL experts and fired their general manager and their head coach. They have already hired a new GM, Kwesi Adolfo Mensa, who is fully involved in the search for a new head coach. And all of the fandom rejoiced at the idea that we might finally trade Kirk Cousins, gaining room in our salary cap, and potentially bringing home a real winner like Kyle Rudolph. I'm judging from your face. I don't think... That that is not what we mean by good news. Yeah, typically that's not what this section is for. Dang it. It was good news to me. If we're going to talk about football teams and good news, the Chiefs are in the the playoff tomorrow. I know. I'm so excited. I am so excited. Probably going to the... Probably, probably, probably. probably. I don't know. I don't want to make. I don't want to make any predictions. The Mm -hmm. Bengals have been a surprising team all year, 
and they have really been putting their nose to the grindstone and getting work done. That's true. Um, that is 100% you know. true. Uh, but I will so, be making my way to Five Pound Apparel today to pick up a Mahomes' Mahomey t-shirt. That is all I'm saying. <laughs> um, on that note, here's some actual good news. If you're a Chiefs fan like me, um, the Chiefs have been donating, or Chiefs fans have been donating uh, in $13 increments um, to the charity established by the Bills quarterback, <laughs> um, Josh Allen, um, because it is a Bills tradition that whenever they beat a team that they're visiting, especially in important games, the fans donate to charities established by the team. Um, Josh Allen's, uh, this charity <clears throat> goes to uh, a children's hospital. And so that is super. Cool. I know as of, as of uh, Wednesday, I think they had raised about a quarter million dollars. That's freaking awesome. Yeah. I think it's, it's gone up more from that. Yeah, as of Friday morning, it was at $400,000. Um, so if you are so compelled, uh, please <laughs> go ahead and and send 13 bucks that way if you are if you are a fan. It's going to a great cause. Um, and the name of the uh, charity is the Patricia Allen Fund. Awesome. And it benefits the John R. Oishe Children's Hospital in Buffalo. Nice. So, okay, so for folks... That's just a bo bonus, bonus, bonus good news. For folks who are not the sports ball fans, if sports ball is not your thing, here is some, some good news that we can celebrate, something accomplished by real-life actual experts and, in my non-expert opinion, time travelers. Hear me out. It's probably as close as we're ever going to get to time travel. In my lifetime, I'm really excited about it. So, mm -hmm. NASA's absolutely incredible... James Webb Space Telescope reached its final position about a million miles from Earth on Monday, January 24th. It is in a special orbit around the sun where it will spend the rest of its about 20-year life scrutinizing the universe and capturing infrared light emitted soon after the Big Bang some 14 billion years ago. Scientists say that it should be able to see the earliest galaxies and study the evolution of the universe. In other words, it will literally be looking back in time to the beginning of the actual freaking universe and sending us images that we can process and see with our 2022 eyes. And honestly, that is a lot for me to process. This, this is why experts are important, people. This. Yeah. And not just experts, the best of the best. Here's a fun fact about this telescope. It was predicted to have a 10-year service life. That is what they were uh, aiming for. If everything went perfect, absolutely perfect with the launch and the trajectory and everything, if it all went perfect, they could maybe reach that 20-year useful lifetime. And everything did. Everything, everything did. Everything went perfect. So they have doubled the useful life of the onboard fuel, which will keep that satellite in its orbit Uh at the L2 point. Yeah. So I thought that it's was just amazing. super incredible. It's also, uh, it, I've been tracking this. I think it's fully deployed everything now. It turned on its high gain uh, transmitter mm -hmm. yesterday. So it is, it is like ready to go. We'll be getting our first pictures back from it here in a few months now. I think it'll be four, 
four months from now, we should start getting our picture, uh, pictures back from it's it. So it's just crazy. And the, the story of this telescope is, um, is long and storied. It took basically 30 years to get this thing built. The experts knew that it, it could happen conceptually, and it took 30 years to turn it into actual technology. And it's, it is a fantastic testament to how expertise can really help us drive progress forward. So should check it out. Yeah. Yeah, the pictures are going to put the Hubble to shame. Very, very excited yes. about it. Um, however, we have kept you for an extra long episode as we come back. Uh, we are staying pretty late, pretty late. Um, so thank you so much for listening in. Thank you for so much for coming back after our unexpectedly longer <laughs> hiatus. Um, we will be back next week. Uh, we very much look forward to speaking with you. And until that point, please, please take care of each other.